Welcome to the Indie Opera Podcast. Welcome to the Indie Opera Podcast. This is Peter. This is Brooke. Huang Ruo. Jillian Flexner. All right, we are joined Yay. by Huang Ruo and Jillian Flexner. And in the booth, Chuck. I'll edit out the silence there because <laughs> it was a really long silence before he answered. What are you doing, yeah, Chuck? I don't know. He's saying just... about which voice of Chuck is today. <laughs> <laughs> So we're joined by uh, Wang Ro, pianist, vocalist, and the composer of An American Soldier, which we had him on last year talking about, and Bound, an opera about a Vietnamese family, which is which had its premiere with Houston Grand Opera in 2014, and Jillian Flexner, the director of the Fresh Squeezed Opera Company, a group dedicated to new opera, which is staging the New York premiere of Bound, April 13th through 19th at the Baruch Performing Arts Center here in New York City. Bravo. Wow. He said all that. That is a long sentence. <coughs> Under one minute. Under one minute. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo, sir. So it's really exciting. You know, we've had Wong on the show. Is Wong Ro. His full name, name is Wong Ro. Is it one word? Either way, for you, Peter. <laughs> One word. Yes. One word. Wong Ro. Like share? Wong Ro. Uh, he's right there. You can ask him. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the one in I, I don't think any of us are on the level of share. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just stop it. Yes. Not yet. Wong Ro has been on the show. Maybe this is the fourth time. Is that right? Third, Third time. Third time. Yeah. Uh, so he's our most repeat customer. That's true. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. He's the biggest friend I'll of the I'll get a cake. <laughs> you should have a cake. I'm Speaking sorry, we cake, don't have cake. Jillian's getting married this weekend. Yes. And yes. we were just talking about an amazing cake that, that what, two layer cake that your husband's yeah, making? Some yeah. fruits, right? Yeah, like it's raspberry and lemon ah. curd. It's going to be fantastic. That's so exciting. So you have family coming in and all yep, that? Yep. And so my fiance, Lee, is also a co founder of Fresh Squeeze Opera, and he's our personnel manager. Very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. And so usually we start the show by talking about things we have seen. And I know that the uh, Prototype Festival uh, was just a couple weeks ago and that that was seen by many people. Now, I actually, for, for family reasons, wasn't able to go to anything this year. So I'm, I'm relying on everyone in the room and Chuck to tell me how to go. Brooke, what did you see? Uh, the only show I got to see in Prototype this year, again, well, similar family reasons, <laughs> <laughs> um, is was the uh, Andrea Clearfield piece, Mila the Great Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the story is, is about um, Mila Repa, the Buddhist myth of the, he was like a, a murderer, thief, turned enlightened Buddhist person. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, the story is really worthy. I My big complaint is that it felt like all the people who were involved in the project were way too close to the subject matter. They're all Buddhists. They, this is a story they already know. They're trying to tell too, they're trying to do too many things with the piece. Um, so I felt like they really need like a dramaturg or somebody to step back and yeah, because there, there, it wasn't really clear. I didn't read anything about it before I got there, which I, which I now do on principle. Um, when I'm seeing something new is I just want to see whether it's, makes 
sense without having any context. Right. And um, I had no idea what it was about until the very end when it, when it became clear that he was like facing his demons and talking about living with your demons and whatever. And I was like, oh, this is a story about enlightenment. Like there, there just wasn't enough context. Like the libretto was very sort of esoteric and again, trying to do too many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it employed a device that I don't particularly enjoy in opera, which is that they were telling us instead of showing us. It's not just opera. It's not a... Yeah, but I've seen it a lot in opera lately. Mm. And I find that it happens a lot and it's something I'm sort of tired of. So there was that. I think Andrea's music was interesting and um, colorful. And I think with a sort of stronger, more structured libretto, um, it could be a really successful piece. It's very interesting. Um, I was speaking with Huang actually a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if Huang remembers this. Um, I'm a composer myself and I'm working on my second opera and I had a huge problem with my libretto. Do you remember this? Yes. And um, because exactly that point where the um, there's too much explaining what's going on and explaining the emotions and not enough like trust in that the music will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Wong helped me figure out how to get the libretto down and talk to the librettist and make it better. But that's a real problem. I think it's, it's a, um, you know, for most librettists come from a different type of writing style. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that, that's something unique to opera that, you know, you have to trust that the music will take it over, mm-hmm. that they don't learn, I think, as if they're not trained as librettists. Sure. Do you think, so the librettists that you're working with, are, are they trained as a playwright? He's or? a screenwriter and he does radio plays. Oh, radio play. Okay. Yeah. So then in radio plays, you have to actually describe the action. Exactly. No, yeah. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But he heard you and it worked out and it was a good It's working out. Okay, good. It's yeah. working out. That's good. Congratulations. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I like the idea of, of not knowing anything about an opera and going in with the, the mind completely <laughs> open. Uh, do you consider that when you're writing an opera upon girl, when you're that you're going to write something that someone who has no prep can understand it just prima facie? I have been fortunate to uh, collaborate with, uh, s- you know, s- several librettists so far, and some of them had no experience at writing opera libretto before. Uh, but I think what works is uh, before everything started, you know, I I explain about. What, what kind of libretto may be suitable for this kind of subject, for example. And uh, 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 so the key is uh, the composer and the librettist work very closely uh, from the early stage onwards. And I work with playwright, I work with a poet, and I work with librettist. So they're all different. But in my mind, I do believe uh, uh, just like writing music, everything can be learned. But it's more important you find someone who's as passionate about the subject as you are, and they are willing to give it a try, and also a good collaborator. I think that's the key. I, I like the idea of composers coming from the point of view that not only do they, the audience ha- can come in unprepped and really enjoy it, just like a, just like a movie, but you also can hear what everyone's saying without having supertitles. Without the supertitles, I would have no idea what was going on. You're talking about operas that are in English. Totally. Could could I add one thing, though? Just put it the other way around. You know, I I came to opera as not understanding other languages and from from a time that I might not have, you know, translation in hand. And sometimes I just turn, turn my head off from the subtitle or supertitle and just try to guess what the stage actions are. So I do believe uh, music should 
review right. the drama. Right. Yeah, even, I don't. I don't use don't, subtitles anymore. Right. Even you don't know what they are singing, but the music should contain what's going on at that point. But of course, it would be nice to know what they're singing about. But I this do think that a uh, uh, music's job also is to you know transform. One of my song. favorite. One of my favorite <clears throat> things that I like to talk about is that art is autonomous. And it doesn't need any context for you to understand what it is, or it shouldn't for you to interpret it. I call it the is Dumbledore gay phenomenon. Because, <laughs> so like, the Har- I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. <laughs> Harry Potter came out, the books were written, all seven were published. And then afterwards, J.K. Rowling said, she's like a question, she was answering questions. She said, well, I kind of thought Dumbledore was gay. But she said that after the books were written. It's not in the books anywhere. Uh-huh. So... In my interpretation, Dumbledore was, you know, he's kind of above sexuality. He's like achieved this mastery of magic where it's just not something that is part of his life. And so he wasn't gay or straight or on the spectrum at all. And so does that invalidate, does what she said invalidate my interpretation of Dumbledore's sexuality? No, because those books were released out into the world and are no longer hers. But I like the idea of coming in as a... Mm -hmm. As a as an audience member, knowing nothing, uh, I think it's a nice nice way to to approach. It. <coughs> Chuck, I wanted to ask you about your experiences at uh, at Prototype. What did you What did you get to see? Sure, um, I got to see four pieces. I'm two sorry. of them with Walker. Sadly, he's not here with us. Um, I got to see uh, Pancho Villa at a safe distance. This tree. Train with no midnight and four forty-eight psychosis. Okay, so we've actually talked about a couple of those on our opera fixes because you interviewed yes some of the artists, so that we were familiar with some of them, but not all of them. What are the What's the psychosis one? Uh, four forty-eight psychosis is based on this play by Sarah Kane who is, was a British playwright. Uh, uh, most of her plays came out like in a five-year period, and then she committed suicide. And this play came out posthumously, and it's basically all the indications of where she was headed. And now it's been set as an opera. There are no specific characters. It's composed by Philip Venables, uh, and it's it's been raved all over Europe. And it got a phenomenal production. Uh, I admire the composition. I admire the production. Mm-hmm. It was a complete why opera for me. What do you mean by why? Why did you oh, need to uh, make this an opera? Why did this? <laughs> why did this need to be set musically? We we use that term in musical theater. Why did you make this a musical? Why did you feel this need to be musicalized in any way? So was it that the content was not? I didn't feel compelling, or that it didn't need music, or what? It, it was. I just didn't necessarily feel that it. It was a play that really needed to be musicalized it's a very dark piece you can't really tell there's a journey it just didn't it wasn't compelling no it was 90 minutes of okay we're in a uh, clinic so i'm gonna leave that alone because i really liked the writing Uh it was definitely very vocal writing Uh i just didn't feel it wasn't that it you know, the story deserved, needed to be musicalized. Right. Now, of the other things you saw, what was the... what was the Pancho Villa at a safe distance. That was the, that was the height for you, the best thing? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, really, the height for us would was trained with No Midnight because it was so deranged and funny and, and totally out there. Just, just fill in the listeners, who is that? Sure. That is Joseph Keckler. Yes. And it is uh, a chamber opera. It's more of a, a dramatic song cycle. And it just takes <coughs> you on this journey. It's like there's no 
actually no specific journey per se. It, it kind of rum, rambles around, but it's it's all his personality and there are pieces that come along. It, it's hard to explain. And But he also writes these really wild contemporary German leader, except it's about contemporary subjects. So you're sitting there watching him sing in German or in French, and it could be about like, not in this piece, but he has a piece called... Uh, Shroom Trip yes. Opera, yeah, and it's all about he he went on, he ended up eating all these shrooms and went on this wild crazy trip, but it's all done in German. <laughs> Ma la cioccolata era deliziosa, così divorai molte stelle in estasi. He really is dynamic and charming, yeah. and but his writing is really good. Don't know. I know that he has this incredible basso profundo sound. Right? It but is. Did it, he sing in the falsetto, or was he it... sang everywhere? It was. I mean, some songs he literally went all over his voice and it was it was specific for specific effects uh-huh. and for uh, uh, near the end he went into more of his falsetto but it's an astonishing voice it's it's huge and so then before that was this tree which was Leah Koloff's chamber opera about her journey through discovering facts about her family that no one knew but also her journey through uh IVF, and that was fascinating. And I, it's unlike shows where you feel like I'm going through their therapy. This mm-hmm. was engaging, and the music was she calls it clunk, classical punk. Right. Um, so, <laughs> I like, never heard that term. It and was I... her on her cello, and we had a clarinet who also was playing banjo, uh, a trombone, uh, bass guitarist, electric guitarist, and percussion. It was just a really fascinating sound. festival had a lot of sort of bio yes song cycles yes and that seems to be a trend and pancho via um is a non-linear attempt to tell the story of pancho via with two singers and i kind of called the music mexican canzonas progressive rock <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there too, and all of these pieces, the band, except for Psychosis, the band was right there. Right. The, uh, they, on the stage. They were on the stage. They were part and parcel of everything. In uh, Pancho Villa, the music director composer was right center. It was fascinating. They used a lot of real time video that they layered in real time. Hmm. 
one of the singers would be hitting one thing and the other would be the other and they'd layer it. They were singing it a lot in, in classical, but also in, in the kind of style of uh, the Mexican canzonas. And so a very high Mexican tenor and a really strong dramatic soprano. And it was, it was fascinating. It was really a strange, fun ride. In all of these pieces, there was a lot of multimedia going on. I mean, it sounded like it was the, the festival was very successful. I hear it was also the subject matter tend to be very dark <clears throat> again. Uh, no, year. no, not no. as dark as previous years. Really? Really. Okay. The, the darkest was Psychosis, definitely. I just wanted to, I'm, I forgot to mention that the cast of Andrea's piece, uh-huh. the Mila, they were excellent, Yeah. Um, including Jonathan Blaylock. Oh, shout right. out to Jonathan. It was excellently sung and it was very well. It was sort of like semi stage. They were on book, but like there was movement that was very well done as well. I just forgot to mention that earlier. All right. And I'm just going to I'm going to unlo- unload the one thing I saw since the last show, which was the Palais de Melisande, which uh, Yannick uh, conducted with such flair. And it really the show was about the orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really the whole thing was about the orchestra. Um, I saw this production when it premiered back in 80, no, 94. Um, and I hated it. And uh, I had a real hard time staying awake for it the first time. And I thought, oh, all right, I'm an adult now. I know more about opera. I just barely knew anything about it back then. I'm going to feel differently about this opera. And I didn't really feel any different about it. I know Brooke looks like she's going to kill me because she loves this opera. But so for me, what it basically was is, you know, when your family comes and visits. Yes. And you plan something, really exciting things Uh to do. And you do all these exciting things. And even if they're there for four days... If, you, if they're doing all this stuff and they're gone, you felt like you spent no time with them. Right. Right. And then if your family's there for only two days and there's like a half an hour where you have nothing to do and you're a little bored and you, everything sort of becomes still and you just sort of are present, you feel like you've spent time with each other. It's very magical. Yeah. You feel like you've actually spent time together. Well, this was like three and a half hours of that. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I spent three and a half you, hours. You mean in the 90s or just recently? <laughs> recently. Recently. So you spent three and a half hours in that still, in this, like, meditative, quiet place. Yeah. Like your, my brain wasn't necessarily recording and uh-huh. I'm not really sure what to do. It was gorgeous and I value that time. Right. But I just felt like... Do you think it would have been served by a different production better? I haven't seen another production, so I. I, I, I but could I you imagine know. as as you, a regular consumer say, of opera? I absolutely could. You could say, but <laughs> I mean, that, of course, the answer is always yes because any horrible piece can be saved by a great production. I mean, you can have the worst thing and then somehow the production, seriously, you can create structure, you can create interest, you can create everything with a production. Uh, I've, I've seen it, folks. <laughs> great shows that you know were not great operas, but my God, what a great show. This, you know, it wasn't that the production itself was bad. I don't think that that's the problem. I just think that it was all, it was about the orchestra. You know, that's basically what the, the opera is about for me. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Debussy was a, a real jerk. Okay. What, why? What does that have to do How with so? anything? He didn't <laughs> care if he was writing anything that anyone would enjoy. He just, he actually was, he's an elitist jerk. I mean, there are a whole bunch of composers who would fall in that category. Yes, but they care about their audiences. Ah, mm. you see, that's where I felt about Adriana Le Couvreur. <laughs> Chilea? 
uh-huh. absolutely cared about engaging with his audience. This is an opera that there are people who absolutely despise it, and there are people who love it, and I'm absolutely in the love field. Okay. And it, it because it is so consistent, concise dramatically, mm-hmm. and yet there's gorgeous music coming out of it, and it gives every character a chance to really be heard and be seen and and be emotional. Which opera are you talking about? Uh, Adriana. Adriana. Yes. Okay. And it's just, it was a phenomenal production too. Uh, this is the new, uh, the new production of the Met yeah. uh, with Anna Netrebko, Piotr Bexala, uh, Anita Rachvalevich. Rachvalevich. Uh, and Ambrosio <laughs> Maestri. It just works so much. It's that, I think, is it the McVickers? <laughs> You're I don't me. know. I haven't seen it. I want to see it, but I, it, yes. it's not being... Sir, Sir David McVicker. No, and no, it was no, conducted no, by Giandrea yeah. <laughs> Noseda. God help me. I'm just murdering names. <laughs> it's all right. So this is where I'm getting that WC was a jerk. I have the note from the program. A well-meaning admirer asked the French conductor Pierre Monteux, do you suppose Pelleas will ever really be a success. Montaigne replied, it was never intended to be. He was right. Debussy never meant for his opera to be popular with the general opera-going public. Indeed, he would have regarded such popular success an artistic failure. This attitude, which linked him to the elitist symbolistic aesthetic, was plainly expressed in the letter to his friend. I, so you take personal offense. I, so I started that. watching that opera with being offended. But you, you can't just <laughs> learn from the program, <laughs> right, no? Right, Someone right, wrote right. it. Then. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I have to say I love this opera for many, many reasons. Um, maybe the production was in the past, and uh, but the music is, um, yeah, it, the music is gorgeous, and he knows drama. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also what I love about it is, uh, yes, it's long, right? But he suppressed the drama, f- but move within those suppressions. Mm-hmm. And finally, when he let the lights in, and you feel so bright. You know? yeah. And also it's full of symbolism. You can't just listen right. to the music. Oh, you no, have to totally. understand the plot, this or that. And there are many hints, you know, very Wagnerian in that sense, right? The orchestration, awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yannick was incredible. You know, all, all that stuff is true, but I, I, I was bored. To be totally honest. Oh, Sorry. Interesting. You don't need to apologize for that. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. experience is your experience. Okay. So, so, <laughs> all right. We, we need to, because Wang Rose's wife is playing at Carnegie <laughs> Hall tonight. Very exciting. She's uh, a bassoonist. Bassoonist, yes. Yeah. So he's going to have to leave. We should stop talking about ourselves and start talking about <laughs> the amazing Bound, uh. which is which is coming up. And also, Wang Rose's incredible success because. An American soldier was listed in the New York Times in December as one of the best things to happen in classical music in the entire year. Uh, and, Congratulations. And Thank then uh, there was another great review just like a week ago for, for the something. Great wall, the Great Sonic the Wall. Sonic yeah, the Great wall, Sonic yeah. Wall. which at National Sawdust. Which is at National Sawdust. So, I mean, <clears throat> he's been like hitting it out of the park constantly. And then he sent me all this incredible music because I've not heard his orchestral stuff, which completely blew me away. <laughs> And I could actually probably talk with you about that alone for an entire podcast, but I want to I want us to hit Bound and then maybe come come to the orchestral stuff sure. later. So Bound is being done in April. It's this is the second production of it. Yeah. Yes. And uh, how did this collaboration come about? Um, well, Fresh Squeezed Opera holds a we do a main stage production um, in the spring every year, and we hold a call for scores. So any composer can submit their opera for consideration and that's something I take great pride in because we don't like Huang is an amazing well-known composer but um 
we try to get less well-known composers and people who are not necessarily well-connected, we try to promote their works as well. Um, but Huang, who is a good friend of my fiance's, he um, sim- heard about our call and submitted his work and our board unanimously selected Bound to Do because it is apropos for the time. Mm-hmm. It is about cultural collisions. It's about, um, it's this true story of Diane Tran, who is a second generation um, Vietnamese immigrant. Her parents came over and she's a real person. And her parents came over as refugees and were placed in Texas. And her father's kind of out of the picture and her mother has severe PTSD from growing up in a war-torn country. And Diane has to support her family, which includes a brother, while being a student. So she finds herself arrested for truancy because even though she's an honor roll student, and it kind of, the opera starts there. The opera starts there and looks back on all of these different people. And it's a very character-driven opera rather than plot-driven, which is ex- very important, I think. And it makes it very compelling and enigmatic. It makes it personal. So people will, it, it, you know, people can relate to these individual characters, even if you're a white girl from North Carolina who's not who's not an immigrant, like that is myself. Um, um, I know I could relate to these characters. So where exactly is it set? Like where did she she emigrate to? The U.S.? Her parents immigrated to the U.S. and she was born in the she's U.S. Born, so she's right. a first generation American. Yeah, I think I said second. I'm sorry. They, no, it's all yeah, right. I'm they, just curious. They live in Texas. In like Texas. Houston. Yeah. Okay. So basically the opera is called Bang <coughs> because um, uh, the, the librettist, uh, uh, Bao Long Chu, and uh, he is a poet and also worked and lived in uh, Texas as well. So when he chose this title, um, you know, we, we all felt each character was bounded to their, you know, their, their dilemma or their destiny. The, the father was bounded to the job he had, you know, he worked at the, uh, the oil station. Refinery. Sea, refinery. And the mother was bounded to the war trauma from the past. She could not let go and she just basically, you know, abandoned the family. Uh, there was also a character, uh, you know, the laundry mat boss, uh, who was bounded to his own American dream and also greed. He wanted to earn more money and he also uh, wanted Diane to to do more work in the laundry mat. So she actually has to miss school because of that. And Diane was bound to uh, her family duty and uh, and the judge, which you ask, is bounded to the law of the land because in Texas, uh, they still have this uh, truancy law. If you uh, miss too many schools, you can't actually be uh, sentenced. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure because I, I wasn't clear on like the time frame. In, uh, in, recent, in the several recent. years ago, yeah. Wow. Um, and I, I thought that the music's really interesting and melodic. This was written in, what, 2014? Yeah. And it's Pre- much more... Pre- premiere in 14, written in 13. 13. Yeah. So your style, it's incredibly flexible. I've noticed you go from huge extremes, from the folk songs, mm-hmm. the music, the folk song music, uh, to your operas, to this. The 
do you find that the writing music for this particular opera? Did you have a sound world? Do, do you sit down and choose a sound world for for an opera? I I, I do. I want to set a tune, but of course I um, you know I I don't want to think too much also because um, I want to to show the drama in the words drama in the opera. But more importantly, I think different story uh, needs different way to tell the story. Uh, but People sometimes they hear uh, their certain character in my music consistently throughout different writing, even from installation to opera to uh, symphonic works. But I think the important thing is uh, because of this story is more like a, a dream sequences. It's like she's mm, reflect uh, reflecting back of what happened to her, mm -hmm. um, and also the 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 libertas who wrote the words so poetic. So so I think I. My, my setting of this opera is more like a lyrical, you know, right. S.A. or scene. Mm -hmm. um, so that must be troublesome when you're when you're coming to stage it. If it uh, dream sequences, that to me sounds like there's going to be a lot of technology or how are you how are you approaching the piece? So Ashley Teja is the director and um, she has put together an amazing team. And the so what's really going to drive it is the idea of the traditional Vietnamese narrative trope of the dream sequence. And so it will tell the tell the narrative of what's going on in a you know in a, like a not sequential format. And she's really driving that with projections and imagery, um, which will be headed up by David Bengali, who's a amazing projection designer. So. And where are you now in the process? We're right? fully cast. We're full. We have our full production team. Um, they're. We're holding production meetings and getting all of the ideas settled. I was just going to ask. Yes. Um, so this is a piece you wrote five, six years ago, yeah. right? Um, when you're looking at works that you have, they're done, completed. Mm -hmm. When you hear them again, how, what is your experience of that? Well, uh, normally when I finish a piece, I do not go back to uh, change anything mm -hmm. because uh, it's not like everything is perfect. Of course, every piece has a is on flaw, right? Uh, but I think that is the history because I respect that part of history, uh, and because of that, it it step by step uh, make my journey to come to here today. So uh, so when I look at it back or listening to it back, it it, it, it still feels close to me because I still remember the emotion and uh, anxiety and everything I went through to write the opera. It was my second opera and after the first one, uh, Dr. Sun Yat Sen, which mm -hmm. is a huge, large-scale opera involving dancers, chorus, uh, 
big orchestra. And this suddenly is uh, one hour long and chamber size. Uh, we casted three singers and seven musicians. So in many, many ways, it's a very different experience to me and uh, I could make it more intimate in that uh, case. Um, yeah, so it's a very special uh, um, experience. And at that time, I was very interested in um, the, you know, the, the young generation who, whose family came from a different culture, mm-hmm. and they were born and raised here, and w- what did they experience, and what are their issues and uh, uh, difficulties facing in their life, living in this great country. Right. Uh, so it's not the fresh of the boat generation, right? Mm-hmm. So after this opera, I wrote An American Soldier, the chamber version, also similar lines, similar idea about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the first generation and the second generation. So I was very interested in that, that kind of issue um, then and uh, um, so so this was one uh, one key reason I we adapted the you know the, the real story from headline uh, this story actually was uh, uh, was on TV was on in the news everywhere uh, it was quite outrage how could uh, you know a straight A student being sentenced to prison because she missed too many schools right um, so but then after after we did more research and uh, one sentence she said on an interview she said I thought my family was happy you know because for her she was for her yes being sentenced was a big shot but her family falling apart her parents no longer together I think that was even a bigger deal to her and suddenly she has to grow up you know Right. Much, much, much faster and more ages put on her. So I think uh, that kind of pressure and that kind of uh, man, uh, mental stage, uh, w- very interesting to me. Did you ever meet uh, meet her or anyone? We, we invited her to come to the premiere and she sent a very nice letter. She did not come. Uh, she wasn't able to come. Um, yeah, so but she was very supportive of the project. Yeah, so 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 that was the story. So what made you uh, submit this to Fresh Squeezed? Why this particular piece? Well, I think at that time I I get to know a Lee who uh, um, who I saw quite often, and uh, uh, this opera has been done once, and uh, you know it was never done again. So um, and I was talking to Lee, and he mentioned about Fresh Squeezed opera, what they do, and I really love their concept and idea. You know, as a young energetic uh, starting up opera company but dare to take chances so I mentioned to him about you know this chamber opera of mine uh, and he told me about you know they look for pieces and uh, uh, why don't I just send it to them so yeah I, I mean I didn't actually know there was a competition process. <laughs> I just sent it to uh, right. the, the Lee and uh, yeah, and then I got this email saying I was chosen. <laughs> Happy great. ending, yes. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about First Squeezed Opera and the founding of it and the impetus behind it? And sure, you know, I also started an opera company a long time ago and it was because I was young and dumb and crazy and I don't regret it and I'm proud of the company and I mm. have, you know, you know, but I'm curious about your Sure. So I'm a composer, like I said before, and um, and I'm also a bassoonist. (laughs) Lots of bassoonists involved. Yes. (laughs) Um, And um, right out of college, I was writing my first opera, and I didn't feel like there was a venue that would or a company that would promote and and present my my piece, which was an extremely silly opera about zombies. Um, it was called La, it is called La Zambiata. <laughs> I love it. And um, I was frustrated with the amount of companies that seemed to go to the same composers over and over that drew upon these you know, like well-made connections. And I wanted to make a company that 
um, composers, you know, that we could present composers who weren't connected and who weren't well known. So my best friend, Maggie Rasco, who I met at college at Smith College, um, where Kate Zober is now mm-hmm. teaching, um, and we're presenting Here Be Sirens, our production of Here Be Sirens at Smith in March. That's great. Um, and my fiance, Lee, who was not my fiance at the time, um, founded Fresh Squeezed Opera. And our first production was La Zambiata. And we are an extremely grassroots organization um, that have a very good, solid, like, uh, following. We have no problem selling out shows. We've never had a problem selling out shows because we present works that are new, that are shorter, that more people can connect with. And I and I feel I I'd never understood. You know, you see in the Times all the time, like people reporting that the problem with opera is no one can attract new audiences and no one can get butts in the seats. Our average audience age is 30. Um, and we have no problem because we simply present operas that people can relate to. Yeah, I, I actually I agree with you that the that myth of the dying audience is exactly that it's a myth it's not true it's not people want to go to opera if they're not going it's because the barrier to entry is too high which may be that in the case of lincoln center the whole place just feels foreboding and unfriendly and they treat you like cattle when you go in and you you know you go through the whole thing with the med and they're yelling at you and it's like some of these people paid four hundred dollars for their tickets i mean when you know can you think of the last time they presented a work by a person of color? Have they ever presented a work by a person of color? I mean, I the Met. The Met? Wait. Yeah. I, I, it's I, despicable. I you mean other than white? Yeah. Right. I mean I, other than white. Right. I mean, no, I, no. Well, no they not. boasted about presenting the Sarayaho piece. Yeah. They should have been ashamed of that. They should have been ashamed yeah, that yeah. they had only presented a work by a woman in 100 years. Right. Of course. Like yeah. Shame. I mean, I agree with you about that. But no, I, I think the, in a larger tandon, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah tandon. In a larger context, it it all like what you're presenting obviously matters. Like the stories matter, and there's there are a lot of works in the canon that are worthy of being presented, and there are a lot of works in the canon that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think often just the barrier to entry isn't even necessarily the piece. Mm-hmm. It's that everything around it is so hard or unfamiliar or unpleasant or uncomfortable and i i think because people do they come when it when it's at a bar and it's in an interesting venue and there's a whole experience Mm -hmm. around the the, going to the show like people go i mean i think about like even like st louis Mm -hmm. where we were this summer their venue is so lovely so welcoming and pleasant and they have these long intermissions where you can go outside and drink wine in their patio and that's so nice I agree with you. There are audiences. People want to see opera. People yeah. want to have a moving and immediate experience. Also, I think um, I remember uh, before the midterm election, right? President Obama said the more diverse the voters are, the more diverse body of people will represent you. So I think uh, with new opera, and it should be more inclusive. And story matters. Opera is about stories. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I cannot tell you how sick I am with another Frankenstein opera, another, you know, uh, I mean, I love Shakespeare, right. don't get right. me wrong, but you know, all these myths, this or that, yeah. we have a lot of them, and can we just have operas about uh, 
who we are and where we are today and about our culture, about Arismo. our own. Uh, uh, yeah. Arismo. Yeah, it, a rebirth it's never of Arismo. Old. It's yeah. never old, right? right. Because uh, a, a, a time like this, actually, we need to say something. And right. opera is one way of artists saying things. And listen, uh, audience, they'll listen to it. They'll get something out of it. Exactly. So the whole experience is about someone saying something and someone listen to it and getting something out of it. Yeah. No matter it's opera or film or whatever it is. So I do think that uh, with that, you will never lose audience because right. people want to. Right. In our last show, we had this talk about identifying with characters and stuff. And uh-huh. I, I, the funny thing is, right after I said, yeah, it's like we need to rethink what Verismo is for uh-huh. opera now. And then you said it in the booth, Chuck. Yes. We're on the same wavelength. It is. And I mean, it is changing because there is a new v- group of composers out uh-huh. there creating opera. I mean, we see it, thankfully, to New York Opera Alliance. We have so many of our companies that are presenting new pieces and composers who are new or or fairly new to opera but i i know what jillian was talking about in terms of when i was really composing strongly and i was submitting for competitions mm-hmm. and one was i mean supposedly specifically for you know younger generation for up for up and coming people and then you i looked at who won and they gave it to philip glass yeah, yeah. and and others of that ilk and I'm like going how is that someone who needed right. this grant yeah yeah right. so i think what's happening and it's not just opera i think that there's a decentralization of media it's happening everywhere it's mm-hmm. in news it's mm-hmm. in film it's that's all it's let's call it the net netflixization of culture where it's being broken into smaller packets and being delivered more locally to the people who are really interested and i think the same thing's happening in opera Someone thinks that the opera audience is dying. Well, you're looking at the wrong audience. You're not. You're looking in the wrong house because right. it is right. not. It's not dying. It's just now. It's right. being presented in a different. It's changing. It's a completely different medium. It's mm-hmm. not the opera house. It's another. Right. It's a different stream. Right. Basically. Yeah. yeah. And I think the companies that have the regional companies of that are still sort of establishment companies that have been successful have been the ones who have looked at the sort of like movement towards the local local politics, local food, and they really like dig in to their their local community and connect with who are the members of their community, who what stories do need to be told. I think of like Opera Memphis, where they, they do some really intense community building and they they see themselves as part of their community and they see them they they see themselves as having a responsibility to their community. So they're very outward facing instead of sort of inward looking, which I think a lot of establishment companies are sort of they're so busy navel gazing about their own artistic vision that they're not connecting with the people around Mm -hmm. them who are there to participate and support them. Then that means that your opera is being performed in all these other weird places. As an artist, it's learning to accept that that is the real deal. You know, like some people don't feel like they've made it if they haven't played, you know, sung at the Met. You haven't made it, you know. The idea of made it has to change. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I have many friends who struggle with that idea as performers that the career does not look like it did 10 years ago. It just is not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, but that does not mean that the fact that you're not singing at giant houses that really aren't hiring anybody anyway, um, that doesn't mean you're not a successful or important artist. But for Wong, how does that work for you? And do you think about the idea of if I write something big, will it will it get produced? I'm curious about that too. Oh, I think the story, the subject is the first priority, right? So when I write, uh, when I write a story, I I don't necessarily think, oh, the audience of New York might like this. Uh, you know, this actually happened when when my music was done somewhere else. Mm-hmm. 
more towards the you know middle somewhere and people say oh my god your music sounds so New York <laughs> so, <laughs> sounds so New York what yes, does that even no mean no one told that me before <laughs> when I was in New York you know so I said like, what does that mean yeah you know? I don't so, know what that uh, means <laughs> anyway uh, no matter it means good or bad doesn't matter I, I, I'm proud of being called that um, <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is I never mean to sound New York or not New York it doesn't matter to me or sounds you know Chinese American or Chinese what doesn't matter what the labels are right I just write the best music I can to be uh, to tell the story in the best way so um, for different subject it asks for different folks so this is key for a subject like uh, um, you know like like Dr. Sun Yat-sen um, with that story it just could not be told with three people right and it has to involve more people and the he's a big revolutionary figure yes and also the system. story the plot was built in a way mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, it called for that many people. With Bang, the, it would be so wrong if I suddenly created with, uh, you know, 100 people involved. Mm. So I do think that um, uh, when I write an opera, how many people involved is called by the story. But of course, uh, with different opera house, you know, uh, obviously it, if it's uh, a commission from Santa Fe, then I, I also want to, to create a story that could fit that house. Mm. Uh, you know, ju- just the nature of the collaboration. Well, what's also quite interesting yeah. about Huang's works is he did write an, a bigger orchestra for Bound, mm-hmm. and he also wrote a smaller orchestra for Bound to give companies options. Mm-hmm. And I think that's incredibly smart. A lot of work, but um, it's telling us to the thoughts you've put into your work for sure. Right, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of I don't I think that the scale of the piece and the orchestra wasn't taken into consideration as much by opera composers in the previous century because there are a lot of operas that really are these intimate, small, up close experience operas that were written for huge orchestras. Mm-hmm. And was that just the expectation of the houses at yeah, the time? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because of the medium, the house, right. the opera house. Mm-hmm. So, with, And now I think that the works are being written in a much more organically appropriate way for mm-hmm. the story that's being told. I don't think that was really taken into consideration as much for you know the last century. Um, yeah. I mean, there's cool. also technological advances today. You know, there's a, I I am a huge, huge electronics fan when it's done correctly. And it's... And when... You know, you when you have electronics done well, I mean, you can have an extremely intimate ensemble that sounds huge when they're all live processed as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, we have that advantage in the 21st century for yeah. sure. Right, but it also came down during that period of the size of the opera houses and the orchestras they had mm-hmm. that they were contracted right. to. And that's a sense what they were being made to write to because they were all on contract as well as the amount of singers they had to use. Mm. Uh, it's, it really took 20th century to break that down a lot more. Um, do you want to talk about your opera that you're writing? Um, okay. We're going to continue. What we're going to do is we're going to say goodbye to Wang Ro, and then we're going to continue this because this is great. You're just going to have him on again. I, yeah, we have to have you on again because okay. uh, I know Wang Ro that you have to go. Always Shame. happy to be back. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This is great. And please come to see our opera, April 13th to 19th mm-hmm. at the... Baruch Perform- It's actually co-production with Baruch. So it's at the Nagelberg Theater down there where um, the 428 Psychosis, is that the name of the opera? 448. 448 Psychosis was also there. Okay, um, great. Thank you, So Wong. great to see you, Wong Thank, Wong. You. Thank you. Lost to catch up next Ciao. time. Yes. Thank you. See you soon. Enjoy the concert. Yes. 
We hope you enjoy listening to the Indie Opera Podcast. Could you do us a good one and give us a review on iTunes? It's a free way to show your support. And if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe to us in iTunes or other favorite streaming service. That way we will be automatically sent directly to you. And if your company wants to reach a creative, passionate, and dedicated audience, please consider advertising on the Indie Opera Podcast. So a few years ago, I saw this video, so this is true, of this guy in Hong Kong who spent five years and $500,000 building a robot that looks like Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> and you can find this video online. There's a whole there's a whole interview and like he's programmed it to be like when you say, you're so pretty to her. She goes, hee hee hee. And like, but he kept insisting that it was for science and like think of all the great advances in technology that'll happen with this robot that was clearly made for sex. <laughs> Um, and so <laughs> the I, I mean, I was totally disgusted. It's the literal objectification of women. And I so the opera, that's the impetus. And the opera is kind is like a Pinocchio arc of a sex or a robot who is really a sex robot, um, kind of finding her own definition of who she is and figuring out what it means to be a woman. If, if she, in fact, identifies as a woman. So there's three characters there's the fembot there's pete who's the creator who's because it's kind of pygmalion it's like pete is a tribute to pygmalion and then he names her gal as a tribute to galatea um and then there's a siri character called cora who's played by two voices and she's like a disembodied voice so he's created both of these women essentially and Cora really created Fembot through her own programming and so it's she is the Cora the Siri character is like the soul of the opera um and Fembot is trying to figure herself out basically the whole time in the end she does spoiler alert she does <laughs> decide that she is trapped in the world of Pete because he created her he created Cora and he created this environment that they're living in she decides that she has to leave and find her own world to figure out is who she is what what being a woman means is she is a woman etc because you know theoretically just because you have breasts and a vagina which Pete made her have does not necessarily make you a woman and so right. she's to figure that out and what that means that reminds me actually of Westworld mm. have you seen oh yeah I've watched yeah. all of the robot movies and shows <laughs> as research right I mean, I, I, I read a lot of sci-fi, mm -hmm. and, and I part of what I really enjoy about that genre is there's so much examination of what it means to be human and sort of philosophizing on, like, the nature of humanity and what makes someone a person versus not a person, and that is right up my alley. So yeah. I'm super excited. <laughs> when, do you have an – is it it's still yes. in, like, fledgling, or is it well, getting gonna Well, it's going to be presented in 2020. Okay. Um, and I applied to the female composers grant. Good for you. So I'm still writing it. So right. we'll see. We'll see. Well, good luck. I, but that subject matter is awesome. So yeah, I mean, I 
it's totally new compositional territory for me. I It uses electronics, live process, and fixed media. And I had never written anything like that. I've heard a lot as a producer going through submissions and stuff. but And I've heard a lot that I really love. But I've never written it. So I've been taking private lessons in Ableton and live processing and experimenting. And it's been a lot of fun That's to awesome. learn about and figure out what kind of sonic worlds I want. So That's awesome. You know, I was looking at your, your website earlier, and you have this amazing list of composers. And I'm, I'm, Honestly, that's just to, like, I put that on our website, but it's really just to keep track for myself, too. <laughs> <laughs> You've only been around for how many years? Six. This is our sixth season. So how many shows have you done? It looked like the list looked like it had, like, 30. So we've done seven fully staged performances, uh, not including this season. And we, um, we do a showcase every year. So that's – and that's – not opera, that's new works for voice and ensemble, on chamber ensemble. Um, and then we've done a couple of other things here and there. Can I do a quick plug? This Please yeah, do. Of course. Plug that's whatever what, you want. I'm not, I'm not sure when this is going to, like, uh, what do you call it? I'm also on a lot of cold medication right now, just FYI. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. I thought that was so just a sexy like, bed voice. Operate, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're operating at the diminished mental yeah. capacity at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Air. I don't know when this is going to air is the word. But um, on Friday, February 1st, the program is called The Female Gaze. It's kind of the idea behind it. You know, there's the idea of the male gaze. And when you're talking about Debussy earlier, this is actually reminding me of French symbolism and French um, art. Typically, when we view art, specifically older art, it's done by men for men. So, you know, the intended audience is never women. And so when you have a depiction of a woman, it's not an accurate woman. It's what that... And I mean, whenever anybody writes anything, this is the case. So the idea of this is these pieces are for women, by women, and um, and for women as an audience and for women as a voice as well. I love that. So, um, and that is when? That's February 1st. We release the show. It's at Roulette. It's, um, so we have Whitney George, who's my compositional mentor, doing a piece about like the digital profile of like what it means to be online. identity that's different from your own identity and how that is especially true for women i mean she's writing from her own perspective which is of a woman and then we have gabrielle herbst um and she wrote a piece about amelia Earhart using actual stuff that she wrote and um stuff that was written about amelia and we have um Gemma Peacock, who wrote this piece about Hecate, who's a Egyptian goddess. But what's interesting about Hecate is she started out as this incredibly powerful, magical goddess. And then as Christians kind of took over the world, they took the power away from Hecate and she became this old witchy hag. Mm -hmm. So it's about like, it, it follows a hymn, an Egyptian hymn and like 
what how that transforms and how an image of a powerful woman can be transformed wow that sounds fabulous well that, that's the entire subject of realistic women on the representation on the stage has been a pet peeve of ours right for quite a while yes um, and uh, i mean the palais de Melisande was just a nightmare when it comes to that what do you mean by like you mean as characters yeah as characters just yeah we've talked a, a lot horrible. about how women are female characters are presented in opera and not consistent but really like the 19th century was horrendous for women because if you look at Handel's operas there are female characters who are nuanced and complicated and flawed but interesting and powerful and can have agency and then you get to Puccini Mm -hmm. and they all have they're all dying or sluts so you can't see this right now but I actually have a tattoo a huge tattoo on my arm that is of Brunhilde and the emulation scene so she's on grana and she's like on fire and it's because um, well, I got it when I as a gift to myself for getting an MBA Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I it's because you know Wagner was this horrible horrible person he hated everyone he hated Jewish people but he hated everyone right. really and um but he still couldn't hide the fact that it was a woman, not a Valkyrie, not a goddess, because she had her powers stripped from her, but a woman was the only person who could save the world in that. And I found that extremely, like, this evil person, he's personally very evil. Right. Even though I'm I'm addicted to his music because I have it, I mean, I tattoo on my body forever. Right. But um, <laughs> he, you know, he couldn't even, he couldn't change that because that's something that the power of women is undeniable. And yeah. only she could save the world. So let, let's take this conversation in that direction. So of all the, the women characters in opera, are there laudable, like who, who, who of all the traditional operas and traditional and, and operas written up to now, who've really been able to represent women in a positive way that didn't just squig you out? I mean, I don't know if it's positive, but I think in terms of all of the characters, I mean, I'm a huge, huge Alban Berg fan. Alban Berg. Really? I wrote my thesis in college on Lulu. Um, and I, I mean, Lulu isn't great. She's a horrible human being. Right. But so is everyone else. And it puts everyone on an equal playing field. Right. Well, she's very powerful. She's really. Well, that, oh, yeah. That to me, though, that whole opera seems to be about men's fear of women's power. Right. Isn't that? No, because she is the. Mm, does Chuck have any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, you, so, so and that's not an opera that I know super well, so yeah. I can't. She come. does and doesn't have agency because, uh, in the end, she is murdered by Jack the Ripper, and right. also the first man that she falls in love with. Yes, right. she exists at the service of men, so it, it's hard to say. But I mean, she's a strong woman, but but it's her female lover who she manipulates who gets her out of jail. Yes, it is the, the Countess Gesch. Geschwan. Yeah, and that's like the best part of the whole opera. The O'Fry yeah. Height part. But this, yeah. this makes me sad. So, if, they, if you're going to look at all of history, that's the example you're yeah, going to yeah, grab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so, okay. Right, but like, so, but, so, but like, okay, you want women who are role models or women who are real people who... who... No, I just, I want to know because when doesn't it, when do you, when like, as a woman do you see a representation of a woman written by a man, certainly, that doesn't completely squig you out? Like I like, I like Alcina okay i like i like the female characters in alcina all of them are flawed complicated uh women you know alcina is a sorceress who's mm-hmm. kidnapped mm-hmm. a man for her own 
devices. Verdi? I don't know. Alcina. I don't know. Alcina's handle. handle. I don't know. I don't know it. Right. It's handle. So Alcina kidnaps a man and Ruggiero. And then she like casts a spell on him, and so he doesn't know what's going on, and she's keeping him on her island. Mm-hmm. And then Bradamante, Ruggiero's fiance, goes to res- dresses herself as a man to go and rescue him. So the there's a third female character who falls in love with the Bradamante dressed as a man. All of them feel like, I mean, it's a myth. They're not real people, mm-hmm. but they all feel realistic in the sense that like these are people who are acting on their impulses. They are making mistakes and taking <clears throat> taking control of things. And like they just feel like they have agency right. and they are not bound by how men view them. They are independent operators who have their own agenda. So how did that book, how did, how, how did Handel get his books? Do you know? That one I don't actually know. Um, did he write his own lyrics? I don't know. Oh. I've um, done that opera. So. I should know that. I know, and I, I always forget because there's another, there's a Handel opera I love that City Opera's done, and it's a uh, the reigning princess, uh, and she basically commands everyone. She has lots of lovers coming to try to woo her, from a general to other people, and she just is standing her own pace. You know, it's like I'm going to choose who I want if I want. There are a lot of Handel women who have agency. It's really interesting that. Well, so I'm just looking at the Wikipedia article on it. Handel used the libretto of L'Isola di Alcina, an opera that was set in 1728 in Rome by Riccardo Brosci, uh, which he acquired the year after during his travels in Italy. Partly altered for better conformity, the story was originally taken from Ludovico Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, the story remi- made me think of Fidelio and Leonora. As a character dressing as a man, right? Uh, the Leonora characters d- d- doesn't squeak me out. As no, much. and I think I really think that like Beethoven is the beginning of the Romantic period or the end of the classical period, depending on how you right? right. It's the Romantic period that I think is possibly the most problematic for women because men they just like became all ver terror and <laughs> women were either saints or whores. That's yeah. That's actually I. I think I don't. What what is the word you use? Squigged. Squigged out. I mean, that's that's 90s. my Leonora. She's she's too perfect. She's too you know. I mean, she's she is Beethoven's light coming down into his darkness and and rescuing him. And and she's the manic pixie dream girl of of Beethoven. <laughs> yeah, I I don't disagree with that. I I th- I, I think that Leonora is. She's maybe less problematic than Mimi. Yeah, for sure. She's less but, problematic than a lot, but but it is she is still not not an so not a real which is, person. Which is why I mean which is why, you know, my selection was Lulu cuz she's not she's not by any means a perfect. She's a horrible person, but she's a person. You know, she's a Yeah. You know, Lady Macbeth doesn't mm. squig me out. Really? But I think it's probably because she was a Shakespearean character. Yeah. You know, like Verdi, I think, in as much as he was able to in the construct of the time, did try to make her a complex person with agency. Um, I think actually women in Falstaff, too, to some extent. Mm -hmm. And and the women in Marriage of Figaro are, you know, the Countess has problems, (coughs) but Susanna... Susanna's doing all right, and I I think they're they're just people. They feel like people. Yeah, and I think that's really what it is. They don't feel like. But I am racking stick. my brain over here, and it's it is very sad that I right. I'm like 
coming up short. I'm really coming up short. Well, right. what about the new operas that, that you've been producing? Are they creating characters that make sense? For because sure. I've seen, I've seen female composers actually create characters that are still just as... We're all trapped in the same universe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are definitely, you know, more well-rounded, more relatable, more people-y characters in general, not just... Um, not just women, or but also men. Um, one of the operas we did recently was Spencer Snyder's, who's a young emerging composer. Um, Scopes about the monkey trial, wow. and there was uh, we did there was I, I mean he was writing it for us, and so we wanted a female part in it. So Mencken, the um, journalist, the famous journalist who mm-hmm. reported on the trial, um, was made into a, a female role. But the other characters who I, I think that if you especially like Williams Jennings Bryan I don't know if you know I'm a huge U.S. presidential history buff it's very I, I've read like seven books on Richard Nixon it's That's very awesome. it's very weird so I don't know if you know about him but he ran for president several times and and lost and he becomes a very sympathetic well-rounded character in this opera because you know he's a president not a president but he's a presidential figure because he's run for president he was very a prominent character at the time mm-hmm. but he was also urging christianity into the government saying that you should not he this guy should be arrested and imprisoned for teaching evolution in schools um and so while that happened a long time ago in the the characterization that Spencer and the um, librettist George Gaffney, I think, that he gave this character was incredible and very well-rounded and made him a sympathetic villain, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think the less mythic and more... Although, I mean, I get, myths can still feel like... Like, Handel said all sorts of myths, like early... Monteverdi, too. But they were Greek mythology where all of those gods were really human truly in the way that they were they were complicated and they did horrible things to each other and then they did wonderful things for each other and they felt like there was something there was a deep humanity in them that i feel like we lost in the 19th century um and early 20th century and it's we're slowly recovering yeah i mean that kind of makes sense if you think about like the philosophical trends happening during those times right of course the enlightenment and and these broad stroke ideas that they didn't want to be down and dirty with like actual human beings right i mean yeah the and and i feel like you know Werther. i don't blame goethe actually because i've read the sorrows of young Werther, and the way he wrote it does not make him to be a terribly sympathetic character and yet we went down this road of insanity (laughs) (laughs) and you know thousands of people killed themselves we did all this art that was all about like you know everybody became a charlotte all the women are were a charlotte you know and it and that just robbed everybody of normalcy and in mm-hmm. and representation in art and actually this is something that i've been talking about a lot recently is how little <coughs> in any kind of art at all how we do not depict real human friendships at all right and there's you know there are some there are some exceptions like the neapolitan novels by elena ferrante which right. which have you read them yeah the, yeah the first one what it does do is it does depict female friendship through a whole life right and i think about like seeing seeing models of what a real friendship looks like or what a real relationship looks like or, or whatever i think i actually think that it matters that we present people in art as real on yeah. some level like i really we do look to our art and our entertainment to i mean give it's us, a reflection of life yeah and and we also like that you know it's art imitating life life imitating art like it's a cycle right yeah. and so you're lost 
in some situation, most of us turn to music or movies or something to like find grounding. And if all that is presented to you are stories about people who aren't actually people, that you're not going to find the answers that you're looking for that are going to be grounded in a, in a reality. And so like depicting friendships in art is something that we don't do. And so lots of people have absolutely no idea how to be a friend. That's Zero interesting. friendship skills. Yeah. Zero. Like I they just don't. This is where the American composers, I would say the American composer of the 20th century really picked up the Verismo banner. And if you're talking about uh, Douglas Moore, you know, Ballad of Baby Doe and his operas. But a lot of the American composers are writing about, because they were writing about real people and stories that people could relate to. I mean, and having real relationships. I mean, if you look at Of Mice and Men. Right. I mean, that's a real friendship there. It's a sad thing that happens to it, but it's a real friendship that's on that stage. Right. And they were writing about real people. Right. And I don't I don't necessarily think that things have to be like literally like I don't Verismo is literal and I don't think that literal is necessary, but I do think relatable and humanoid <laughs> human <laughs> like uh-huh. the sense of like feeling like that that is a that is a somebody that could actually exist in the world. Like that, that to me matters, I think. Yeah, and, and I think that I'm starting to make a split in my mind between operas that are um, summer blockbusters, like right. Wagner, you know, that he's Bo-am. making super, well. I, I would say Wagner is a summer blockbuster. No, but I do. It's, I think if it's a supernatural, you know, it's Superman. Oh, you're thinking like you're comparing oh. it to like Lord of the Rings. Like yeah, that Lord kind of, of the Rings. In terms of epic proportions. Yeah. And then there are operas like Bohem. Which to me are more like uh, something that was done in you know, romantic comedy. Yeah, yeah, that you'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> something Except not really funny, but <coughs> not funny at all. Actually, there's funny moments in that show. Yeah, I mean, um, it tries to be funny. <laughs> it can be funny if it's done well. So I think that there's a certain. I mean, there's a space for a verismo that's human, and then there's space for the superhuman as well. But I think that the, what you're saying is that 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 connection that distillation of the human experience into this refined gods and goddesses should still have a connection to the i think the the key difference is is the gray you know in a lot of these operas it's always like i mean it's funny because it's oh i just saw you and i love you i fall in love with you because you're so beautiful but that's it's not necessarily that you know the in new opera and opera that tells a real story that you know you don't want that love or you don't want these exciting moments it's that life is not yes or no it's not black or white it's gray and and capturing that and capturing like these these moments of confusion and these moments of stillness that makes it real but there's also there's still like the exciting highs and lows and and it can also be in a very supernatural instance like um we like i mentioned earlier we did kate soper's here be sirens about sirens stuck on an island and it's 
Greek, you know, ancient Greek and Roman mythology. And it is very much relatable because she's made these characters. It's an examination of who they are. And she's made these characters go through highs and lows throughout the course of the opera and and really think about what it means to be a siren, what is a siren, and what are the implications of that. And at the same time, have its moments of humor, have its moments of sadness and scariness. So it's still grounded because they have these real conversations between each other. But it's also still exciting because, first of all, the music is right. amazing. And and also, like, you have these highs and lows. Yeah, I think that writing the gray areas and writing it with depth uh, is very, very complicated. And yeah. that's why sometimes when I see operas where there's, like, violence and stuff, it's like it's sort of a substitute for depth. Gunn's going to instantly have a, an emotional reaction. But to get an emotional reaction like that from something that's human and real in the gray area is it's just a much more difficult thing to do. Ex- yeah. You know? And I think it's really about the characters traveling in some way. Because if you think about a lot of the problematic female characters in opera, it's that they're fixed. They don't change. They don't grow. They don't learn anything. They are just there as set pieces around the growth of the male character. So, you, like, I think of, like, Carmen, for example. Carmen doesn't change. Her situation, she makes choices that are consistent through the whole opera that are predictable. She doesn't, aside from the one moment of the card aria where he gives her a little bit of like reflection, she is just an ornament. And the story is really about the evolution of Don Jose. And so, you know, some people argue that Carmen is this empowered woman, but she's not taking any journey. She's not learning anything. And like people, that people don't function. That, I mean, I guess some people function that way, but that's not doesn't make for a compelling story. Right. Um, you want to see people be changed by their experiences. Right. And not just die. Right. <laughs> right. right. Not just die. Like I mean, that doesn't right. count as a journey. Right. No. <laughs> right. No. Yeah, exactly. All right. So actually, we've now we've used up our time. Believe Can it or we not. not. Talk, I need to talk about some other shows. That I yes, I know. So I'm saying we're, oh, we need to move gonna... to our next end move. So um, I know that we're doing things out of order, our traditional order, which is totally fine. So let's let's finish by talking about some of the things we've seen. So I saw um, Dear Eric at City Opera by Ted Rosenthal. The storyline is compelling. The basic idea is that the composer himself is a jazz pianist. He found uh, a bunch of letters that were written between his grandmother and his father from the World World War II. His father emigrated from Germany uh, before things got really bad. And then his mo- there was all this correspondence of him trying to get his mother out. And then he didn't. And that's the storyline. It sort of goes back and forth in time. I thought that using jazz to tell the story worked sometimes and didn't work other times. I thought the libretto was very basic. Mm-hmm. It was very rhymy and not in like a fun way. Um, and the text setting was abysmal right. in the mm-hmm. sense that like it was so unsophisticated. Right. Um, and also the, uh, I, so I, I'm really mad at City Opera. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for lots of reasons. But, like, in this particular case, first of all, I know personally that they cast the show, like, three weeks before it was supposed to begin rehearsing. They yeah. The singers that they hired were not necessarily bad singers, but they were not polished, not city right. opera level. Um, I think they didn't take the idea of jazz seriously, or they were like, well, we want a younger... I 
I have no idea. I, I mean, I think like so. Jazz is a is a huge genre. There yeah, are, it's just it's as like, big as classical right, music. Yeah. Right. So like, jazz can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. And so what so, did it mean in this? Case? In this particular case, it meant sort of lounge style oh, piano really? jazz, mm. which there were there were some musical numbers where I was like, this is correct. But for a lot of it, I was like, this is this should be way more avant garde, way more angular. Holding way, more emotion. Yeah, holding. and also like there's something. I mean, I love I love jazz, and there's something really sonically overwhelming in a good way about jazz. Like when you go to like a, a jazz concert with like new jazz happening, it's sort of like Peleos, but like in a much more sort of overwhelming way. It's yeah, like this... jazz is a democracy. It's <laughs> yeah. a pure democracy. Yeah. Classical music is a dictatorship. Right, and so there there were moments where I was like, I really want this to be a transcendent musical experience and it needed a much more complex musical language in order to tell mm. the story effectively. Uh, the singing was really uneven. The opera, the, the last scene of the opera should not have been in it. Oh. Um, it got to, the, it did this very like musical theater, like final number thing that really ending it wasn't a happy ending <laughs> but it was that it was that sort of vibe where they and they tried to and they it was became really political and they made like it was just like oh this is nope nope mm. no don't do that um and the production values were stupid mm. so it, it where just, was it done? it was in at the yiddish national theater the oh. which the the venue was cool um and you know the story was appropriate to stage in the space um and i just was like this is really a bummer yeah and i and i do you think it was the opera itself or the production i think well the opera would have been elevated if they'd cast higher level singers mm -hmm. and i and again I, i'm not trying to slam they're just young like they were just young a lot of them young people who well and that not... kind of lead time for a new opera like you know you want to give the score to singers at least a month if not two in advance for them to get used to the the score for new music right and and i think i, I think also if you're city opera you don't cast yeah. a month before you start yeah. rehearsals yeah like i you, heard about that too so that was frustrating um and i i just feel like uh i i just want so much more for that company and they're just not they just do not have a vision that matches the level that they should be like i was talking to a friend of mine and i i was like i feel like if i saw this in like rural idaho i'd be like okay that was pretty cool but this is new york city right like there's no excuse in the in and they have resources they do know? they have resources they have access to like some of the best and most interesting artists in the world and they're those best and most interesting artists are sitting at home watching netflix and they are casting young singers right. who will someday be amazing but we're not ready to be on that stage but yeah. props to them to doing a new opera because they haven't done one for a while city opera's done a lot of new operas actually Lately. they've done yeah in the past broke, couple of years they broke did back. broke back they did um they did the uh florencia and amazonas they are actually doing a lot of new opera they are making it at like it sort of feels like the lowest common denominator mm. right. well i haven't had a chance it's so weird i have actually haven't seen the new city opera since they've since they yeah, i just not, I, I, I had I, to find out about it too late or yeah. it's just in, on a night i just it's just I, weird it's not 
I have not. Yeah, I guess I haven't been too informed either. That I didn't know. I, I saw production. Anna Nicole. And it was well, that, that was before. That I know, was I know, old. I know. It was, yeah. it was the was old great. city opera. That was one of right. the best. Right. The last new hurrah. Right. Yeah. That, that, that was, was a good That one. was the end that was their dying right. shout out. It was so good. It was and great. the thing is, yeah. the writers there were the people, some of the people who created Jerry Springer. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, right. they are wild and they went big. Yeah. Right. That was incredible. And it paid off. It was great. So also, Two more things. Yeah, I on. saw Ariane of Noxos <laughs> All right. presented by the Cleveland Orchestra. Ooh. As you might imagine, uh, the soloists were excellent. Uh, Tamara Wilson was Ariane. She, was it staged? It was staged. Um, the venue is, you know, Severance Hall. I don't know if anybody's been to, well, somebody's listening has been to Cleveland. But uh, Severance Hall in Cleveland is this beautiful sort of art deco building that was built in the 1920s. Um, and it's lovely. and But it's like, it's, a, it's an orchestra hall so the stage it felt it had even though it was staged it felt semi-staged because it wasn't really a theater space mm. um but that's okay you know ariane doesn't require a particularly large orchestra it's only like 35 pieces or something um and i felt like i really m- wanted there to be more strings um just for the for there to be like a lusher i mean because i i love strauss right. and i felt like the woodwinds were just a little too too much like they needed to be balanced out by more strings but that I mean that was that you know Strauss wrote it that way so and I I would say that like I I mean Cleveland Orchestra is great Um, they're a great orchestra I felt like it wasn't as sort of flawless as the Met Orchestra is and I was surprised by that but also like they don't play opera as a regular thing Um, and so uh, I mean Kate Lindsay was composer Um, she has an extraordinarily beautiful voice it's it's light for that role I I lost her a few times mm-hmm. they had some like euro trash projections happening <laughs> that was a little like okay like some of it was good and some of it was just like I, why am i looking at a disembodied head well that has nothing to do with what's happening on stage right now but like it was um it was good and then i also saw the scarlet ibis in oh. boston as produced by a boston opera collaborative by stefan weissman and david cody um, the production was really amazing. The singers are extremely talented, very young, so not as polished necessarily. You know, some quirky thing. They just haven't necessarily worked out all their quirks, but like talented singers. And the piece I thought was really great. What is it about? So it's about the relationship between two brothers who one of them is several years older than the other. The younger one is born with some physical limitations, just very fragile. Okay. And it's a about the relationship between these two like the older brother wants a brother but is really frustrated by the limitations of his little brother mm. and it's sort of about that how that relationship evolves um i thought the music was really i i i just thought i thought it was a really successful piece is it the first um, time it's been done or is, was this it was a no this was not the premiere it was the boston premiere but it it was done chuck you prototype prototype did it um in 2014 15 something like that prototype did it oh. so this was their second performance great um chuck i got to see the share show which i absolutely Ooh, loved. Any- really it was so much fun they are having so much fun there there are three shares on stage and they have them chat together and bicker together and support each other together. It's uh, <laughs> by the same uh, librettist who uh, created uh, Jersey Boys. Um, and it, 
it really worked for me. It was a lot of fun, and the music is a lot of fun. And I went back to the band's visit, uh, which is just it's uh, David Yazbek, and it is it still the same cast? The uh, it is a we lot of the same cast. Left. 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 Uh, no, he left, and they brought in the actor who played the role in the original movie. Oh. this mm. Israeli actor. Wow, uh, and it's such a gorgeous a adult show. musical. It's it's a musical that makes you lean in. Uh, yes, so the uh, Tufik is now played by Sasson Gabe, and I actually saw the understudy for uh, Dina, the female lead, Jody McFadden. It's it's still holding up. It's it's a gorgeous adult piece. It's not big and splashy. No, it felt Did like straight, a straight play with music. Like wow. it doesn't, it doesn't, there's nothing about it that's like, da, 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 da. like it's not a musical in that, in that sense. No tap um, numbers? No, oh. no, in fact. <laughs> um, so it feels, what it feels like is you're watching a straight play and then suddenly there's music um, and it's. Just, or very organic. Yeah, yeah. It's almost it, like diagenic music yeah. in a musical that's right. interesting yeah yeah i mean it's i it's, mean i haven't seen it just for the record right but, <laughs> but like the music with the exception of a few songs and a few like ensemble numbers is actually part of the story so like the band is sitting around playing music and that's the band in the story was sitting around playing music so there's um i've heard complaints from a few people who went to see it thinking they were gonna have like a Broadway standard Broadway experience, and it's not that. Um, but it was it is excellent. I highly recommend it. Cool. So I got my wisdom teeth out two weeks ago. So I was on Vicodin and watching this amazing Netflix show called Instant Hotel. Australian oh, reality not, TV shows it. are the best reality TV oh shows. It's a it's a people have their own ho, you know a home B and Bs and they're right. competing with other <clears throat> couples and it gets real catty. Definitely it's great. check it out. Definitely um, check so it out. that's my <laughs> that's my <laughs> hopper recommendation. Let's bring this the show to a, a crashing conclusion. Uh, does anyone have any final things that they want to say that they're either going to see or messages to get out before we close up? Sure. I'm getting to see a vastly revised Merrily We Roll Along at Roundabout Laura Pels. It's done with a cast of six by Fiasco Theater Company. And apparently they've done a lot of reorganizing, brought in uh, older material. But I mean, this is a really the score is so rich and so it's going to be really wild for me to see this done with six people mm. and Alexander Gemiani mm-hmm. the son of Paul Gemiani is the music director and new orchestrator and it's really it's going to be exciting to see that because he's primarily known as this major uh, Broadway singer actor and so he's stepping into a new role that he's probably been doing for a while but we're finally going to see that Cool. Any, anyone else? I'm going to see Bluebeard and Iolante. Oh, yeah, I've seen mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of Gerald Finley. Oh, yeah. I saw him Dr. in... Dr. Tomic? No, I saw him in um, William Tell. Oh. And he was amazing and he's light for a bluebeard but i don't care mm-hmm. i am excited because cool. he's such a great singer Let's see i will definitely go to see peleos that's on my list so if you want to know more about first squeezed opera where should people go and and how do they find out more about you um you can go to www.freshqueezedopera.com it's not freshly squeezed and it's just because i'm from the south and we don't do proper grammar <laughs> 
So when I named it, I was like, well, this is an adverb, but I guess I'm not going to treat it like an adverb. So it is fresh squeezed opera. Fresh squeezed. So my final word is, you know, I've had some family stuff going on and I also have made some New Year's resolutions. And one of the things for this year uh, for me is to remember to say thank you for things. Um, And it's the idea of giving thanks. Uh, I'm going to try and keep that in the back of my mind. It's very Marie Kondo. No, but I don't know who she is, but sure. What? No, I don't. I'm, I, if it's a pop culture thing, don't <coughs> grill me. So I wanted to thank Chuck especially for rearranging today. It was a real Herculean effort to reschedule this particular uh, session. We had to move it because of double booking and blah, 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 and people's weird schedules. And so I wanted to say thank you to Chuck because it was a lot of work and I appreciate him stepping in. And I just want to say thank you to and everyone who are involved in producing our show, Walker and Brooke, appreciated. And um, all our guests, really, it, it's, it takes a lot to organize these right. things and get people into room. We room. have amazing conversations yeah. with interesting, complicated people, and we love it. Um, and so thank you to the yes. guests. And thank you to all of our listeners, right? Yes. Thank and you, podcast listeners. And thank you to you guys for having me and Huang on the show. It was sure. a pleasure to have you guys. Thanks, Jillian. Is that it? I guess that's it. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. This episode of the Indie Opera Podcast was recorded at the National Opera Center and is produced by Peter Zepp with co-host Brooke Larimer and our special guests Jillian Flexner and Wong Rowe. Our show is created with the support of associate producer Chuck Sachs, Ross Crean, who created our theme music, Sharon Apostolou on social media, and recording engineer Matthew Wilson. This episode was edited by Peter Zepp. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>